0: is now being recorded.
1: We are SC podcast Gary Pasquitz joined by Lizelle Brandt and Lizelle thank you for joining us today we have a situation with the Todd McNair versus NCAA case going on right now and uh, for those who don't know you are a practicing attorney in addition to being a contributor for RSC, So this case is right up your alley. It's one that you've known for a long time. You've covered Todd McNair, and you've had a chance to be in the courtroom. Just want to kind of get your sense, Lizelle, on where things are at right now through the first week or so of the trial.
0: Thanks, Gary. So happy to be here. Yes, this is definitely right up my alley as a civil litigator. Um, my thoughts initially are I am happy that we are here. It has been about seven years now since the lawsuit was filed by Todd McNair on June 3, 2011, and you know, we've gone to the Court of Appeals. We've gone back. We've gone on for years, and I'm just happy, actually, that this case is, is finally seeing the light of day and that the dance or the trial is actually going on. Uh, yeah.
1: And so and so now that we are here and, and, and you're seeing we're going to kind of go through uh, what, what you're seeing in the courtroom, what kind of arguments you think each side is developing, we're really going to talk about the lawyers at some point, because obviously that's something that you're interested in, and we want to kind of mm-hmm. give our We listeners a sense of uh, of where things are at and then procedurally how you see things going from here. But just right now, Lizelle, as you've had a chance to see each side begin to frame their case on what their arguments are going to be, what are you hearing so far?
0: Okay, Gary, well, I mean, initially, I guess the the way to frame this is that in approaching this trial, there are two big issues that uh, each side is going to have to address. I'm looking at this from, from the jury perspective. Number, first, number one is, and, and the reason is because if you look at Todd McNair's lawsuit, so lawsuit really falls into two categories of claims. One is defamation. Did uh, the NCAA make false uh, statements against him? And the second is uh, contract claims. Did the NCAA breach his contract with USC and, by extension, Todd McNair? So with that in mind, uh, you're going to see the, I guess, the key points that each side is trying to make boil down to two big issues that the jury is going to have to make decisions on. The first is, did the NCAA violate its own bylaws in terms of, uh, there's a specific section, actually. It's section 19.1.1.4, Duties of the Coordinator of Appeals. And that states... That, you know, and this is with Rodney Uphoff, that, uh, he's not to be an active participant in either the institutional hearings or during the committee deliberations. So that's number one. Was there active participation by people including Rodney Uphoff, Roscoe Howard, Shep Cooper, who were not part of the voting committee of infractions at the time? That's number one. Number two, you've got the issue of credibility between Lloyd Lake and Todd McNair. What happened between those two? Was McNair privy to any allegations or was it true that he was told that something was going on and he knew about benefits that Bush was allegedly receiving? Who do you believe, convicted felon Lloyd Lake or Todd McNair? And one interesting thing that I think hasn't gotten enough attention out there is that when the Committee of of Infractions made its decision, it had to abide by a certain standard of proof, and that's called clear and convincing evidence. I'm actually going to geek out a little bit here, Gary, because um, in terms of burden of proof, that's a pretty high standard. By comparison, I had a civil trial about a year and a half ago, and the standard of proof was preponderance of the evidence, which means if you're looking at a weighing scale and all things being equal, if you have one drop of sand that pushes it slightly over, then you've proven your case. That's preponderance of the evidence, which is a pretty um common burden of proof in civil cases that aren't court-related. T- but the NCAA has a higher burden of proof in order to make its determinations. And that is called clear and convincing evidence, which means that they must have a more firm belief, not just preponderance, not just more likely than not, but a more firm belief in um, their ultimate decision. So they must more firmly believe in Lloyd Lake versus Todd McNair. And that's going to play a lot of it into well, you know, who do you believe? Again, the convicted felon or or Todd McNair?
1: And, and you're to me, and it's that's been, been see is a lot of the
0: testimony going around.
1: Yes. And, and it's been pretty. It, it, we have heard it before when it was all happening, but to see some of that different differing testimony come out right now, or to see some of Lloyd Wake's words and how they got twisted around, and then the, you hear from Todd McNair and to hear them believe. Lloyd Lake every single time has been pretty dramatic right now. So I think that's interesting. But you know, Lizelle, what I really liked hearing sure. from you was talking about the up-off emails and his weighing in from the outside. I've always thought that's been one of the key elements of the case. And I would ask you as a lawyer, it really makes it interesting to me that up-off Howard and Cooper, this was some of the most slanting and damning words towards Todd McNair. And yet none of them should be allowed. How do you have law professors from other schools weighing in from the outside when they weren't supposed to with such strong language about the case?
0: Absolutely, Gary. And the other thing, again, that I, uh, that I wanted to press on that I feel isn't getting enough attention yet, and maybe it will at some point, is what was, what's lost in this is that all of these members, whether it's Uphoff or Rusko Howard, Eleanor Myers, the committee, they are volunteer, I mean not volunteer, they are unpaid members. So they get nominated and they're put on this committee. But if you look at it from that perspective, added into everything, so you're talking about these, Um, People that for about six times a year, they weigh in on cases 20 hours, they are not paid. So it makes it even more interesting that, I mean, I sit there and I think, well, if I'm sitting on a a committee and I've served on um, other public boards before, why would I just, you know, on my separate time, just do this extra work of reading 2,700 pages, I'm not getting paid for this, and then writing a seven-page memo and submitting it so that that's one big question that I have separate of the language but then when you get to the language itself he's talking about you know losing sleep um uh, right on you know just days after the deliberations and they are pretty damning that that that's by uh Rodney Uphoff and you know Roscoe Howard calling Todd McNair morally bankrupt when he wasn't he was technically the newbie but I mean they, they called him the pit bull, Chef Cooper again. It was really interesting how these three individuals were so involved again in a case that it, I mean my view on that is if you're if you're Ronnie Uphoff, he is the coordinator of appeals, which means he really doesn't come in unless he's trying to defend them later on. So for him to inject himself in early on before a decision is being made is kinda of like the cart coming before the horse, Gary. You uh, you just want – his involvement is really, well, make your decision, and then after that, I'm going to defend that. And and you see him, and he, he even admitted it in testimony that he was trying to influence I, – I was there on Thursday. Unfortunately, I couldn't be there every single day, but I was pretty amazed at how regularly Bruce Borlette, the attorney for Todd McNair, was able to get him to admit that he – uh, that he wanted to influence the committee to make it arrive at the right decision. He kept saying, he, Bruce Burlett would say, you were trying to influence the committee, and he said yes, and then he'd add, to get the right decision. And, and I'm, I kind of get where he was going um, for, but I don't think that it was playing the way that he probably thought it was, because the way that I was hearing it was you're trying to influence the decision the right way that you you want it to be based on your other emails about losing sleep for three nights in a row.
1: Sure seems like he, like you say, sure seems like he was weighing in when you hear it that way. I, I'm, I'm imagining that's one that resonated well. I would like to ask about your, your thought on one of the NCA strategies with one of the arguments they made right at the top, was, there, and that was to say, yes, we acknowledge making mistakes in the investigation, uh, which obviously stuff like up-off doing what he did is, is one of them. But to admit that right up front and then the way that they went after Todd right away Saying we only gave you a one-year show cause, you had plenty of time to try to get more work. We don't think you worked hard enough. What do you think about those two elements at the start for the NCAA?
0: Uh, as far as them making an admission of them not being perfect early on, that's a pretty. I think it's a smart strategy. You want to be the one to bring it out if you're. If, mm-hmm. you, if you look at a trial as a chess game, you want to be the one to bring out your uh, your, your bad news. That way, you can take a little bit control of the na- of the narrative early on, versus somebody else bringing it out and and just, you know, slamming it in your face if you're not being completely truthful. We've seen Bruce Borlett do that on a couple of occasions. I'll talk about that later when we, we talk okay. about the attorneys. So that's um, that's my thoughts as far as them initially coming out with their mistakes. It's something that, that I would do. I would I would gloss over it a little bit, but it, at least they know that we're, we're aware of that rather than it just coming out and surprising. Now, as to uh, Todd McNair not being able to, To um, find a job, like after they only had the um, one show cause um, penalty, that is something that is definitely going to be at issue. They've they've already um, hammered on it. So when Todd McNair takes the stand, it's something that I will definitely, if I'm there, uh, be paying attention to. If I'm a jury, I want to know well what what is your answer to this? Why weren't you able to find a job when? Uh, two other people were, who are, two other coaches were hit with far, you know, with even longer periods were able to find coaching gigs, um, pretty shortly thereafter. Mm -hmm. And as an attorney, Gary, when I see cases that aren't, that are similar to my case but go against me, I try to find something that distinguishes them. And if I'm Bruce Burlett and I'm guessing this probably is going to come up because you're looking at, uh, let's, so you're looking at Bruce Pearl. He was with the Tennessee Volunteers um, as a, I'm sorry, the Tennessee Vols as a head coach, and um, and he actually ended up at Auburn. And Kelvin Sampson, he was actually with. I, I don't think that your basketball program gets any bigger than Indiana, and he again also was able to find a, a coaching job. And I think the reason is because they were head coaches, and what distinguishes them is that you're at a higher level. Of um you know awareness, you are on the national stage. You there is there is upside to still hiring these coaches from top programs to to be at your program from recruiting reasons, other reasons, and they've had a chance to make a name for themselves. They have the contacts. Todd McNair, while he was you know big within USC and probably within the Pac, I guess Pac-10 at the time, Pac-12, um, he is an assistant coach. He wasn't Pete Carroll, so I don't think it's a fair comparison, and this is, again, what I'd be arguing with if I was Bruce Burlett, um, to say that, well, this assistant coach who, how many people would want to take a chance on him, given the fact that, you know, there's this potential issue of him helping another, you know, player, did he know about does not tell the university, and he's just an assistant coach, he's not, like, the the biggest name, how how much can he help us in recruiting, uh, and again, ask him, compared to... The other coaches, Bruce Pearl, Calvin Sampson, who were head coaches at big programs. So I think that that's a little bit uh, of a way to distinguish. I, I
1: And I thought it interesting, and, you know, not as a lawyer, but just it struck me that, <clears> that those were the two first points they're making. It almost felt like, <clears> okay, we, we, we admit we're kind of guilty, and so let's just get to the money. Let's just get to hammering down how much we're going to have to pay you. Uh, I thought that was interesting. Let's, uh, and I know in some cases the, you want
0: to – I'm sorry. Hello? No, go ahead. And I know in some cases, and that goes to mitigation, because that will be the question, well, you know, did you try to mitigate? Did you try hard enough to try to get jobs? And, and one of the things that came out is that he's worked for Uber, and he's going to get a job with high school. I'm sure that, you know, having been paid $250,000 a year, uh it, to go from that to an Uber job probably wasn't his first priority, but he's willing to take it, and that shows you, you know, some level of, of mitigation, but obviously they're going to try and minimize their damages, which is going to go to, well, how hireable were you after that, and right. how hard did right. you try, and his argument is, well, after you made these arguably defamatory statements about me, how wh- what could I do? You, you know, you cut my legs out from beneath me. He, he did try with um, Coach Tarkeesian, Coach Carroll, and um, Temple, where he played, but, you know, Again, for whatever reason, it apparently didn't work out. So, but if I was him, I would argue, well, this is me. This is me trying it. But you've kind of put my legs underneath me, so I don't know what you
1: expect. But let's go to that right now, and that is the lawyering, which is uh, which is what you were paying a lot of attention to. And so, talk about Bruce Burlett. What 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 do you think of the the job that he's doing so far and the tack that he's taking?
0: Bruce Barlett is lawyer, the lawyer for those who don't know. Yes, yeah, Bruce Berlett is, is Todd McNair's no, a lawyer and I think he's doing a masterful job. I am watching him and I also like that he's five foot two so he's a fellow shorty. Um, but <laughs> definitely a big presence in the courtroom. He, there's a few techniques that I really like that he does. I would call one like the death of a thousand cuts where he just, he will hammer and hammer just a little bit when, when Uphoff was on the stand. Um, one of his first questions was, well, that that was before you start. Was that when you started losing your sleep to Rodney Upoff, And it took him out of nowhere. And he's like, no, I didn't really say that. And you hear Bruce Burlett say, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. And then he would repeatedly ask questions over again. He's like, yeah, when you were losing your sleep, when you were losing your sleep, he kept saying that. And he's really good at just keeping that in in the juror's mind, um and he just he's he's got this way about him where and the other thing uh-huh. that he's good at and, and any good plaintiff lawyer is good at is um is making the jurors see good visuals of, of what's happening one of the and I tweeted about this one of the best analogies that I think and it was perfect when he was talking to ahoff was about how. You know, well, you're the coordinator of appeals, and why are you sending these emails about losing sleep to, you know, trying to influence it? And he kind of likens it to um, people that weren't on a jury going to a jury and trying to tell them what, how to deliberate. And right. it's pretty genius because he's looking at the jurors while they're doing this and he's kind of implying like, hey, would you like it if somebody came to your deliberations and tried to tell you what to do? And you're looking at the jurors and you could tell they got it. It's a great visual and something that I'm sure that he's going to continue on probably, you know, when he's talking about Roscoe Howard, Chet Cooper, like what are these three you know stooges doing? What are they doing? Why are they trying to put themselves in this narrative when they are not voting members of the committee? How much did they influence this? Was this proper? Was this a violation of that Article 9 uh, in the NCAA bylaws in their, in their manual? So, I mean, he's got this really, um, strong, good way about him. Um, I would mean, say almost very folksy, uh, comes across as honest and that's pretty much, uh, a, a good plaintiff's lawyer. So that's my okay. on him.
1: There's the, uh, the old then, saying, the other side has lawyers, too. How are the NCAA lawyers doing?
0: Uh, so soy I'm going to pronounce this, Kostos uh, is, uh, was the attorney when I was there, actually, and he was there from the beginning, uh, who's represented the NCAA. And he's a little bit of a contrast to Bruce Burlett in that he's a lot younger, so Bruce Burlett is, uh, you know, he's, he's got white hair, he's a little bit older, and so comes across, he's, he's taller, and he's younger, and his team is, appears to be younger as well, uh, and he's a little bit more formal. So, and this is actually pretty common as well that I've seen from defense attorneys. There's a lot of them are, or it can be more formal. They want to make sure that they're, they, they've got the appearance that they're doing everything i would say by the book he's the person who um is going to make sure that you know he's doing everything properly in terms of questioning laying the foundation and and doing it right but he's also been able to make some pretty good points i would say when i was there the biggest thing that he was able to to show um when angie critters was on the stand was there was he was uh attacking todd mcnair's credibility which again is one of the two big themes that you're going to see is attacking attacking todd mcnair's credibility he kept repeatedly asking well did you believe him? Independent of this, regardless of whether or not there was a typo here in this one report, did you still believe him in the totality? And, you know, repeatedly got her to say, no, no, I don't believe him. So there's a lot of good questions that he was able to, to bring up. He had his own technique. Um, he was, I would, I would say, if I had to compare the two, Bruce Borlett would be a little bit more scrappy, trying to sneak things in. I mean, there were times when I was listening in in, in, in the courtroom where Bruce Borlett would just go on with these hypotheticals and in legal terms, um, sometimes we're gonna make this wrong comparison. It's not completely direct and the objection would be improper or hypothetical. And it would take um uh, Stojovic a while but ultimately he would object but he was um, it was interesting to see again um Bruce Burlet sneaking things in and very unassuming but he'd he'd get he'd get in his points. Uh Stojovic a little bit more, I would say, the word isn't professional, but a little bit more, you know, firm and, and, and by the book. But I would say it's effective as well. It's just that he has a different set of facts, different things that he needs to prove. And, um, based on what I'm seeing, it, it seems like he's a little bit more uphill because he has to defend the NCAA against its, its own bylaws when you've got, you know, evidence in writing of these emails between these three individuals, again, who are not members of the voting well, committee.
1: When the first thing you're saying at the start of the trial is we acknowledge making mistakes. Yeah, that's uh, that's getting it out there. Okay, procedurally, uh, where do you see things going from here? Uh, how do you see things getting here from here to the end of the trial?
0: Okay, so procedurally, this is a three-week trial, and uh, what it, what happens first is the, the plaintiff goes first, and they get to present all their evidence. That means they're going to call up all their witnesses that they need to make their case that you know, defamation occurred, that breach of contract occurred, tortious interference, um, negligence, everything that they've listed in their seven claims in their complaint. Uh, so they put up all of their individuals, they bring in all of their emails, everything to basically make their case to the jury. After that, the defendants are going to go up and they're going to get to present all of their witnesses and do the same thing. So where we're at right now, and a lot of people are saying there's a high talking about how good this is for McNair, but this is pretty typical at this stage because it's the plaintiff that is presenting their case. So it's pretty common that yes, you're going to see they're, they're presenting their case, here's their evidence, mm-hmm. and it's obviously going to look really good because that's what they're doing right now. It's their, it's their show right now. Right now, um, But when the defense comes on, what will be interesting to see is, okay, how are people reacting now that the defense is putting on the witnesses that are for their side, that are, that are bringing on their view, likely attacking Todd McNair's credibility. I'm guessing, likely explaining. My guess is that they would um, jump more on the eight other committee members that were voting committee members and try to say, you know, independently, we would have we would have ruled this way. I don't know if that necessarily gets around the NCAA bylaws violation, but that's what I'd be mm-hmm. hammering on: is oh, we didn't. We weren't really influenced by them. So. I would be very interested in seeing Eleanor Myers' testimony because she is one of the people who, on email, voiced her concerns early on. Right, Um, right. So that's somebody that I'm definitely would be looking forward to um, hearing. I will say that again. I was really I was recently involved in a three-week trial, and um, it is to the advantage of the plaintiffs actually because what I noticed is early on the jurors are high energy. They're they're you know they've got this case and it's exciting. But I got to tell you, Gary, by the third week, these jurors um, were. (laughs) They were ready to get out of there. So sure, I don't know if sure. that's necessarily, but you have to think of these, sure, your people, they have their lives, and, and while this is an interesting case, um, I'm not necessarily saying that's gonna happen, I just know that it was an advantage to, as a plaintiff, to, to go first in the case, um, versus the defendant, Um and uh, the NCAA, hopefully they're gonna be doing what they can to make sure that, yes, you're paying attention, you're seeing our, our evidence, and then, so that's, they're projected three weeks based on how everything's going so far they're all they already seem to be behind schedule i wouldn't be surprised if if they uh, would go over our initial trial um, that i was talking about was two weeks and we ended up going about three and a half weeks actually so this may end up going another month and then after that you know how how quicker deliberation is going to be it could take a day it could take a couple of days but yeah
1: it's, uh, it's, it's been as interesting so far as I think we thought it was going to be. And, you know, to, to, to be so familiar with it, to know these emails so well, to know these players so well, that the fact that they're finally on the stand and we're hearing this, uh, just can't wait to see where this goes over the next couple of weeks. Well, appreciate it, Lizelle. Look forward to, uh, to doing this again and kind of giving an update, uh, in, in framing it the way you can to kind of give people an understanding of what's going on right now because it can get a little, you know, getting through the lawyerly stuff sometimes. You're able to do that.
0: Uh, yeah, if I could add one thing, Gary, though, actually, one thing uh-huh. that I wish that I, I wanted to I wish that we would be able to see that we're not going to is, is Reggie Bush or Lloyd Lake take this down, because that obviously goes directly to the, you know, credibility aspect and what happened in the, that phone call January 8th, 2006, but again, because of confidentiality agreement, likely not going to happen. So that's, that's, if I was a jury, if I was somebody sitting on the jury, that's what I'd be thinking. Like, well, you know, I'd like to hear from these people, because they are going to hear from a canary. But
1: not that. No, your, your, your tweet from the day in the court was appropriate. Where Where's Reggie? Where is Reggie? <laughs> it's natural to want to hear from him right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: well, thanks for your time, Lazelle, and uh, we'll touch base with you later on the trial to get another update. Yes. You're listening All right, to, thanks, for, Gary. For Lazelle Brandt. Brandt, this is Gary Pasquist. You're listening to the We RSE podcast.